This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Erosion, and the author, Julie M. And Julie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Julie. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us, Julie. This is going to be a fascinating discussion about your book, Erosion. Let me read what you've written just to kind of set the stage for everyone. You say, Erosion is the story of a girl whose life is shaped by the choices made for her as a teenager. As she comes of age, these choices lead her on an unpredictable journey of loss, regret, romance and self-discovery uh-huh. self-discovery i'm sure uh in this in this story especially since she had such a domineering father yes uh her father is quite a character he's uh very almost militant in his control over her do- over his daughter and um he just manipulates her far more than you can possibly imagine Well, before we get into more details about the story, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how this book came about. Okay, well, I am currently a teacher in Edmonton, Alberta with Edmonton Catholic. I teach elementary music to grades 1 to 6, so 6-year-olds to about 12. And uh, I've been teaching for, oh gosh, 21-something years. And uh, this book um, happened at a time in my life where... um, the work life was great, but my own personal life was kind of falling to pieces. I have two children, and at the time I was married, and it was not a very happy marriage. And um, Kate just kind of came to me. She was this almost like a, not a dream, but just this presence in my life who wouldn't leave me alone. And so I just started writing about her, and and I started writing in uh, about January 2008. And by the time summer rolled around of that year, I had... Um, just reams of an outline and I just started writing and two and a bit years later I had what I thought was a pretty good book as good a book as, as anything I've ever read and and then it sat for a year and um, and I don't know I just just submitted it what the heck and uh, here we are I think we would all agree with your premise about the influence of our past uh, on mm-hmm. our present and future lives it is real, and of course, Kate is a great example of it. Yes, um, you know, Kate is in some ways a lot like me. Her her past is reflective of her her new thinking and her you know her new life towards the end of the book. And I think we can all have we all have moments of during our our history, whether it's our teenage years or young our young adulthood, and into our our. Uh, our life where um, we're not quite sure who we are and the people that are involved around us kind of not necessarily manipulate us but guide us not necessarily in the right ways and that's true to ourselves and I think Kate discovers this we all do uh, discover this as we grow up does her mom just give way to Kate's father um, her mom is um, a very strong personality in her own right um, however, she dies when Kate is in her mid-teens, and so her influence is really just in, in memory, and her father certainly takes over. She's that quiet um, presence in the background whenever she was alive, but of course, once she passes away, her presence... But Kate has Ginny. Yes, her savior, really. Ginny is her her great-aunt, so it's her father's aunt, and uh her father ships um, Kate away every summer from the time she's five uh, up until she's a teenager. And um, Ginny really saved her by welcoming, welcoming Kate into her home and loving her like her father never could. Um, and it quite literally saved her life. It gives her something uh, that she can hold on to in her later years. Ginny's ripped from her 
as as a seventeen year old her father takes her away and doesn't allow her to see Jenny any any longer and it's that memory and that love of her aunt that saves Kate and gives her something to hold on to as she goes through the trauma of her life. I'm getting emotional just talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> now, do we get to know the reason why her dad struggled in this way so much that he had to control every aspect of Kate's life? Yes. Um as Kate is uh, an adult, or as she becomes an adult, um, there's a situation in, in the book where she becomes pregnant with her first child, and it's it's not a wonderful situation as as maternity should be. Um, it's got its own issues that the reader's just going to have to read about. But during that time, she becomes reflective, and I think all new mothers kind of do. And there's a moment that she's she's sitting in her rocking chair and she's contemplating this new baby that she's carrying, and, and she thinks about her father who's recently passed away. And and uh, during that time of his, you know, leading up to his passing, um, he has the opportunity to kind of free himself of all his wrongs and apologize to his daughter and and he confesses to her why he's raised her how how he has and it's really a, a very poignant part of the story again i'm getting emotional just talking about it um but it's 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 just a wonderful wonderful way for them to finally connect as a father and daughter really should and of course the theme really emphasizes the power of love yes we we see right at the beginning of the book Ginny's love for Kate. Even though Ginny's not her parent, she has that role in Kate's life. And so that is a very powerful, pure, pure love. And we also see in the middle of the book where an Arthur, her father is passing away, how he really truly does love her. But we also see that love that is tarnished and almost ugly because he's not a very good father to her and he's very cruel and mean in so many ways and he's manipulative. And so we see the different facets of love, whether right or wrong, it's exposed. And I think we all have those parts either in our lives or on the fringes of our life. And, and so it's, um, it's just a very powerful theme throughout the book. And you like to throw the reader curveballs. Just when they think they've figured it out, you surprise them. I do. It's very unpredictable. And that's, I think, what keeps the reader captivated. And I think it what it's what hooks them. Um, you know, I'm a new writer, and I didn't really know what I was doing. And so um, as I was rereading the final draft of it, it just it was captivating to me and there was parts where you know I'd almost forgotten about and 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 was delighted when things changed and it was it's wonderful is this just for women no actually I've had several men um read this book in my life and uh, I mean of course these are people that are familiar to me but at the same time having said that they they read it with open eyes and um were were delighted with the book. It was um, not just for women. It appeals to men. There's some characters in there that are just wonderful. There's this Wayne who is, he's just seedy and he's awful and he's hes a guy's character. And I think, not that men can relate to a guy like him because you don't want to be like Wayne, but he's just, it's not all female stuff. It's just, it's a good book for everybody. So it's a book about second chances. Yes. It is. I've had many second chances in my life, and um, these characters have that opportunity to explore second chances as well. And again, it's being true to yourself and taking those second chances for you and not for someone else. And it also addresses alcohol abuse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, there's there's characters in the book who are um, abusive, and they are abusive because of their exposure to alcohol and and to a lesser extent drugs. It's it's alluded to, but not the focus of it. It's mostly alcohol abuse, and and um, it's just it's an awful thing, and it does awful things to people. And you know, as bystanders, you know, we're exposed to people who live that way and suffer the consequences of their behavior. And Kate is one of those people in the book who is on the receiving end of that. Um, abuse and uh, it's it's hard to read sometimes but it's it's really part of life unfortunately now who is Terry you call him pathetic Terry is um, 
ends up being her husband in the book, but Terry's a character who is the son of someone that Kate's father used to work with. And he is, he's kind of a sad character and he's pathetic in, in his own way. But I, you know, I think some readers will feel um, kind of that he is pathetic and others will really sympathize with him because he's, he's just this lost, almost little boy that just kind of floats through life and doesn't have control. And Arthur puts Kate in his way as a way of kind of helping him. He's the son of this old friend, and and he thinks that Kate can help him, that they can actually help each other. And so the parents, you know, design this way of getting them together, and eventually, you know, Arthur in his control forces Kate and Terry uh, to to be together. And she ends up marrying him, and and all of Terry's issues um, really uh, force force Kate to figure out who she is and what the kind of person she wants to be and in the end things don't really work but she's grown as a person by knowing Terry and and in her way loving him and through your examples we I'm sure will relate to the fact that our actions have unforeseen consequences Oh, absolutely. And as a teacher, I mean, I see that all the time. The kids, you know, will do things and they don't know what the consequences are. And, and so we live that every day from the time we're little. And Kate um, Kate is exposed to things that, you know, she she thinks will be fine and will work out. But then there's this character of Wayne, Terry's brother, that comes in and just does these things that she can't fathom how how things are going to settle and and end for her and um it's it's hard to imagine and that gives the the book this unpredictableness to it where you think you've got it figured out and then things happen and you don't know how what consequences are going to happen based on that and they might be you know years later in your own life or in in my case of the book chapters later but um yeah it's the consequences are are interesting <laughs> Well, before we find out the best way to get your book, Julie, tell us in closing a little bit about your philosophy, your view of life. You call it living consciously, which is an overall message of the book. It is. Um, That's something I have honestly struggled with my entire life. I mean, I am nearing my 50s here, and I'm getting much better at it, but it's something I think we all struggle with. And, you know, I alluded earlier in the interview how... You know, my marriage wasn't great. Um, I do have two wonderful children and a good relationship with my ex-husband, but um, living consciously is something I struggled with as as a little person all through my teenage years, which is the natural years to do that, but I kept struggling with this issue. And um, I think, you know, working through this book and, and living, kind of living through Kate and, and helping her work through the issues that she needed to as a character really helped me um, find my voice find my strengths, um, my own personal conviction to come out of the end of my separation and divorce and, you know, being a single parent for a few years and, um, you know, get back involved in, in life. I've met a man and actually in the last, we got married on July 31st of this past summer and so I'm living consciously now and I'm enjoying every minute of it. What is the best way to get your book, Julie? Erosion. Erosion is available um, at our local uh, retailers in Canada. Um, we're trying to get it on the shelves, and of course, the more interest there is in the book, the more available, readily available it will be. Uh, you, if it's not currently at Chapters and in Indigo, it can be ordered through those uh, stores online. They can bring it in for you, and uh, um, it's available as a, as a Kobo reader, e-reader, and of course, you can go right to iUniverse and order it directly there. Well, thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. 
Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled A True Free Market. Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. Author Stephen Taft joins me from the New York City area in the United States of America. Welcome, sir, to the program. It's good to be here, Jay. Thank you. This is an important topic and certainly one that's on everyone's mind. If it's not the politics in the United States, it's uh, worldwide. People are concerned about finances. Some want to take from uh, the ones that have already made it and give it to the ones that haven't made it. What is the purpose of your book? Why did you decide to tackle such a difficult subject? I decided to tackle this subject because we don't seem to be able to get it right. Capitalism is a wonderful thing. It, it, it respects uh, human ambition, and uh, it respects the fact that there are differences among us in, in talent and ambition, but we don't seem to be able to do it in a way that, that makes many people happy. There's always a few that are thrilled, right? Uh, but half, half the country always seems to be upset for some reason. And I, I wrote this book because I have all the respect in the world for capitalism, even admiration for capitalism, and I just got frustrated that we can't do it better. And the book shows not only why we have the problems that we do, but also suggests ways to fix them that are kind of out-of-the-box answers. They get away from the tax rate should be a little right. higher, or the tax rate should be a little bit lower. Right, and, and you should penalize those who are making more money than those that are making less, and those kinds of uh, questions and statements that get thrown around. You've, you've cited Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural address where he basically said that the government is supposed to re- restrain men from injuring one another and leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement. So his concept or his his viewpoint was that men should get out there and work and and uh, prosper from their efforts. Is that right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's Is okay. There a question to follow, or well, I just, just wanted to comment. On no, that? I just wanted you to comment on Thomas Jefferson and and how that that work ethic, that that concept, that uh, drive, that energy has been lost over the last century or so. Well, it's if it's been lost, it's been lost because. Uh, I think we've lost sight of what an economy is for. And I, I, I realize that's a strange thing to say, but right. I mean, an economy is the rules by which we all get along. It, it enables uh, strangers to have, have interactions with each other and, and exhibit a, a modicum of trust between each other because there is a government behind the transaction. Correct. Uh, so, so in no way uh, would I advocate for eliminating uh, the government, but the government has to understand what it's supposed to do. Now, in Jefferson's quote, which is a great place to start talking about this, I think, I think the, the word that kind of led us astray is the harm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying to get the quote in front of me here. Sure, the, qu- the quote uh, talks about harm, and it says, uh, "Shall not take labor or mouth of labor the bread they just earned, right?" And so on, and it so, talks about the harm. So, yes. So the harm can be defined in many different ways. Obviously, you know, harm. Uh, the obvious way is uh, if someone wants to take something from you by force, you know, with a gun or a club or something. That's a form of harm. Uh, but there's also uh, more subtle forms of harm. Uh, you know, if, if there's a chemical spill on your property that, that didn't, wasn't your own fault, mm-hmm. you know, that's a form of harm. If, if there is a, a contract that was misrepresented to you, that's a form of harm. You know, so, so you need 
government to accommodate these different forms of harm and try to prevent them or rectify them at least. And, you know, we are a very litigious society. Correct. And uh, I think that part of the government's growth has been because people want total safety and total protection in their lives, and it's just really not attainable, but we keep trying. What do you so think? we try to eliminate all these different harms. What do you think of the analogy of the government perhaps being a, 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 an impartial referee, perhaps, on the sideline? Would that really be a better way of describing the ideal situation? Well, it's the government that makes the laws that we have to follow. Right. And the government can only be impartial if the laws themselves are impartial. So the laws can't be made to favor one company over another within an industry. And ideally, the laws can't be made to favor one industry over another. Makes sense. Uh, you know, the, so, so the, the impartiality that you talk about, Jay, has to be within the law itself, and then the government's actions are going to follow. So we need to really understand uh, what's happening in our economy, and that's what I try to get at in the book, that we have just have to write our laws on a deeper level and, and kind of take the petty politics out of it. I, I would love to see that happen. Uh, personal responsibility, personal restraint, I think, is something that's missing, and even corporate restraint in some instances. And uh, sometimes the laws, the, the restrictions, the roadblocks that are set up by governmental agencies seem to impede the progress of a free society. I was uh, looking at your chapters. You have one called Free Land Ho. What is that chapter, chapter 7? What does that refer to? Well, the idea there is that uh, to have a free market, there has to be free choice, not only within the market. I mean, you, don't, you have to be able to say no to any transaction, really, or it's not a free market. Mm-hmm. And to be a truly free market, it should be a choice to even participate in it or not. And that chapter, Freeland Ho, shows how that can be part of our freedom as well. How, how people can kind of opt out and still be responsible for their own livelihood, their own well-being, without depending on government or any sort of payments from other people in society to help support them. You have used the, the term liberty and justice through economics. Uh, flesh that out a little bit for my listeners. What does that mean in your way of thinking and uh, descriptions? Well, we have these rules, these laws in place that really have had the effect of causing a lot of problems in the economy. Uh, And I will uh, uh, illustrate those. Uh, But to answer your question, when when we structure the economy with laws so that we're spending so much effort to fix things all the time Mm. and adjust things all the time, it it takes away from our liberty and freedom, and it it creates inefficiencies. Uh, And and if people have uh, the freedom to uh, choose at every step of the way the kind of life they're going to have, instead of being born into some kind of dire circumstance, uh, then uh, there has to be more freedom around. There's also, by the way, uh, that unleashes the entrepreneurial spirit right. that we all have. Instead of having it concentrated in the top few percent who have access to funds, that's where most entrepreneurship comes from right now. You know, we, we can free it up across all walks of life. That's true. You you have mentioned in, in some of your dialogue the term have or have nots. Uh, there is a television program that I've noticed on the air internationally that is titled the haves and haves not have nots uh, how do you address that uh, envy that's being perpetrated between people of uh, of means and those who have uh, i guess survived the entrepreneurial effort or journey and those who are still struggling what is the way that you can motivate them well first of all let me say i have not seen that show I hadn't even heard of that show until this conversation, okay. so I'm not commenting on that show. That's fine. It's, uh, it's on the O but, Network. But, I will share that uh, that bit of, of detail for you. <laughs> but but the the idea in a true free market 
is not about mitigating the results. It's not about uh, taking uh, from a billionaire and giving to a poor person. It's about creating a, a, a true, a fair playing field where there is an equal opportunity across the board, and then results take care of themselves. I yes. mean, if someone can become a billionaire from having a, had a fair start, more power to them. Wonderful. You know? And so we really should be focusing on creating a fair playing field instead of focusing on redistributing results. But the reason we have to do that is because of the laws we have in place. And some of those, right. we have to refocus. I mean, the, the idea of whether the tax rate should be 38% or 32% or 24% isn't going to fix anything in the long run. We have to, we have to get away from the idea of, of uh, that, of, of taxing income and capital and, and moving on to other answers. What has been the, the one chapter or the one idea that those who have read your book have gravitated towards and said, wow, that, that really does make a lot of sense? Or is there more than one? I'm sure there are. but Well, uh, yeah, there are. There, the, the book is very, um, if I can dare say this, it's, it's fairly rich in uh, new ideas, some old ideas that aren't talked about much, but also new ideas. And... Uh, it has a tendency to uh, excite some people uh, in some ways, and those same people are kind of leery about other things. So it, it, the appeal is not to someone who thinks uh, in a conservative mind or, or with a liberal mind. It kind of ignores those classifications and, and speaks to ideas that just seem to work from the fundamentals of human nature. Uh, and I'm sure in this uh, talking that I did not answer your question. Oh, you're close enough, uh, though. That's, that's all right. <laughs> you, have, you have approached the book in, in your writing style uh, almost as though it were a fictional novel in some ways. You have a conversation in your first chapter between two gentlemen, and I'm sure this was part of uh, perhaps observation, but also part of just life experience that you shared here. Uh, did you use this style throughout the book? Yes, the, the conversation between these two old friends is the whole book, other than the uh, introduction and the closing chapter. Everything that's in between is the conversation between these two guys. The reason I took that approach is because uh, economics at its heart is not about formulas and percentages, but about how laws affect people mm -hmm. and the choices that we can make. And so by keeping it on the level of the human being, and hopefully readers will like these guys, uh, or at least one of the two, <laughs> you know, the economics, I think, can be brought to a level where it should be operating instead of the level where it is operating in our current culture. And makes it very approachable as well. It's, it, it makes a very complex subject one that is more easily understood the way you've approached this. I think so. That was the intention. Uh, if I may... Let me just talk about, uh, you know, I talked about getting away from tax rates. Correct. Uh, let me just uh, talk about why that's important. Because when we're taxing incomes, uh, for example, it causes problems. I mean, we look at it as a way to fix problems by adjusting the rate. But the, the reality is, is that taxing incomes causes problems. And I can explain that this way. About half of us in rough numbers uh, pay an income tax and half of us don't hmm. everyone who pays the income tax is either getting a salary to give them a certain lifestyle uh, or they're producing goods uh, to give them a certain lifestyle and right. sell, you know they're selling those goods so the fact of the matter is salaries have to work on an after-tax basis and prices of products have to work on an after-tax basis for the people who make them. But everybody is buying products, whether we're working or not. The poor and the retired are buying products in the same way that uh, the people who are wealthy and working are buying products. It's true. So, so, the, so the prices have the uh, tax liability for the people making that stuff built into the price. So what happens is, uh, even the, the non-working people, the poor and the retired, end up paying some of the tax for the wealthy and the working. That's true. And it makes uh, the poor poorer and the rich richer than they otherwise would be. Mm. 
So, tough, so if we can get away cycle. from that, a lot of problems go away, too. Stephen, how long did it take you to, to create or finish this project? It took me about 20 years to wow. think about it and about four and a half years to write it. You've done a great job. I love the approach that it's a conversation between two older gentlemen in New York City at Central Park, and, and it just sets the the atmosphere for a conversation about life and, and about this particular subject. A true free market, conversations on gaining liberty and justice through economics. My guest, Stephen Taft. Now, sir, where do we get copies of this book, and where can my listeners get in touch with you? Copies can be had uh, at barnesandnoble.com, uh, amazon.com, uh, Google Play, Apple Play. Uh, local bookstores will order it if you walk in there and ask for it. Uh, it's available as hardback, ebook, uh, and paperback. Do you have a website or do you have another project oh, yeah, in the web? Get in touch with me. Sure, absolutely. Uh, my, if you want to email me, uh, thank you. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, if you want to email me, it's Steve at a truefreemarket.com. Excellent. And, is there uh, and a pro- I'm happy to uh, talk, and I, I keep, uh, there's a True Free Market Facebook page. I blog uh, at a truefreemarket.com also, uh, and I'm totally uh, eager and open to uh, talking with people about this, because just as the book is a conversation, that's how any change happens, is with conversation. Everything starts as a conversation. Wonderfully said. Uh, whether it's, so that's what I want to help spark, is a new conversation. Thank you for sharing your ideas and for completing this project, A True Free Market. Is there another project in the future that you're working on now? Yes, there, there is another project. It'll, it'll be necessary if A True Free Market uh, takes off. But there's a morality behind economics, and, and uh, the next book will be about that. Fabulous. I look forward to visiting with you again, and thank you again for sharing your insight and your years of experience in the financial markets in this book, one that is conversational, easy to read. Readers, if you have any curiosity about the free market system and uh, how to perhaps get a hold of your own finances and and, uh, make your goals a reality, this book, again, would be one I would recommend. A True Free Market, Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. My guest, Stephen Taft. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Jay. Thank you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Lafayette, His Extraordinary Life and Legacy. And joining me from Florida to talk about it is the author, Donald Miller. Welcome, sir, to the program. Good morning. Good How to, are you, Jay? Good to visit with you. I, uh, we, in our pre, uh, pre-recording visit, I understand you are also the author of seven other books. This book on Lafayette, uh, most people have heard the name, a little of his story, but don't know the details. Why did you choose to write about Lafayette? As I say in the subtitle, had an extraordinary life. He is remembered by most Americans for his role. He he, in the American Revolution, he was in, uh, commander of, you know, of, interna- of uh, continental troops in Virginia. And he chose Virginia because he had a, a, ch- a, a son-like relationship with George Washington, mm. who advised him throughout his life. And one of the interesting things that most people may not know is that uh, he, through inheritance, he was a multimillionaire. Really? And he was 
um, his parent has, he never knew his father who was killed in a battle in in Germany, and which is the style of the family. They came from a long line of French knights, going back to the Middle Ages. And as a young boy living in the south central part of France, he was imbued with his family's background. And from an early age, he had a, a yearning for fame, which never ever left him. Why did he and feel? Why did he feel drawn to Virginia specifically, or to the United States, or the the not the United States, but the the, the fresh colony? Why did he come to to this country to uh, to engage in warfare and and other activities? Well, he was attending a dinner one night that was thrown by his commandant, and a man named uh, De Bruy. Uh, Ruffec, and he and this was in Metz on the eastern uh, border of, of France. And the guest of honor that night was the brother of uh, uh, George the Third, mm-hmm. the Duke of Gloucester. And I think for the first time ever, I go into who Gloucester was and why he was traveling in Europe. Anyway, he he much opposed his brothers uh, overseeing the hiring of Germans to fight the American colonists because the Brits, the British uh, soldiers were stretched around the world defending what was then the empire. So Lafayette said the moment that he heard about the American colonists, he was with them. Of course, uh, something like 225 French officers had already gone over and they didn't fare very well because, as you know, the, the, the government, the American government, such as it was, was very, very poor, didn't have the right to tax and so forth. And so Lafayette, through the help, as I say, pretty much for the first time in English, um, through his friend De Broglie, uh, was able, De Broglie knew who he was, where he came from, and that he had been in the cadet guard for Louis the Fifteenth and things like that, grew up at Versailles, knew the who, the princes who would become later uh, kings, and and he had that, that great association. At one point, after he married, at the age of uh, uh, sixteen, uh, another uh, he married a woman who, a girl, I should say, of fourteen, oh. and uh, the ceremony was held when anyway. Lafayette, believe it or not, at the age of 19, uh, suddenly had a, uh, a step-uncle who was the French ambassador to the court of St. James. And they went, he and one of his new cousins went over to visit, and he had a meeting in which he met George III. Can you imagine? Imagine. Wow. Uh, but he was just filled with a love to... Uh, come to America, and he, at uh, the Battle of Brandywine in the early part, well, there was about 75 encounters before he ever came over, you know, in the war, and he came over, but he, he played a major role in the Battle of Brandywine, which is near Chad's Ford in Pennsylvania, eastern Pennsylvania, and uh, uh, was uh, shot through the left uh, calf. Hmm. So he was, he was proud to shed blood for America. You have you have described him also as a champion of equal rights. You've also described him as a uh, person that was uh, referred to as a hero in two worlds, the United yes. uh, this continent and in Europe as well. That's there correct. he had a colorful life. Uh, you would think that privilege would have uh, diminished his enthusiasm for warfare and the other struggles. Why do you think he he uh, retained that enthusiasm? I think he was so impressed with the Americans that he met in terms of, in terms of equal rights. He tried to talk George Washington, who he called father, into uh, setting up an experimental farm in which black people, black workers, could earn their freedom. When George Washington, who was just becoming president, felt it was just too much to handle at that point, plus the fact he was a southern gentleman, um, Lafayette then uh, set up with his money, he he bought and stocked a farm or plantation, if you will, in French Guiana in the Torrid Zone, 
and that lasted for seven years until it was crushed by the rebels and, and back in Paris by that time. Incredible. You also say yeah. that he was incarcerated for a number of years in prison yes. because of in his the, work. Exactly. In the course of his uh, rise, he was the uh, founder and first uh, uh, leader of the uh, Paris National Guard. He designed the uniform for it. He, he did the he designed the French tricolor, the flag, which flies today with three colors that are in the American flag. And he rose. Uh, he, he, he rose in the army later uh, after he was the instrument, if you will. He became the policeman for uh, the royal family, meaning uh, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, and uh, ushered them back when the women's march on Versailles turned bloody. He protected them as the policeman, pretty much, of Paris, and and was pretty much that for for quite quite a while. And a year after the uh, uh, the attack on the Bastille, he was in charge in that first year of pooling down the prison, which was of course anathema to anyone in the, among the more among the citizens of France. Yes. And uh, and then something that most Americans know nothing about uh, was instrumental in creating a tremendous pageant called La Fédération. Uh, and it was set up where the Eiffel Tower is now. Of course, it wasn't was there it? then. But it's a, a three-block space in which they build a natural amphitheater by digging up the soil and mounding it up, and there were at least two decks that, and there was a, he orchestrated this presentation that this was, he thought, the end of the revolution and things would be better from 100,000 people attended this on the anniversary. Wow. And, and later, and he became the, the general of the North. What he may or may not have, and probably did not know, was that uh, the royal family, he, he was instrumental in having them come back to Paris in, instead of escaping, as they probably were going to do. And um, he then became, as I say, the general of the, of the North to help to, to defeat the Austrians and Prussians, who had been called on by Louis XVI to help him defeat the French army to restore him as the king. Why is your book, Lafayette, His Extraordinary Life and Legacy, important? What was the passion that drove you to write about his history? Well, when I find, found out all of these principles, for instance, I found out that uh, he advocated civil rights for all. He wrote the, he, he thought that the Declaration of Independence written by his friend Thomas Jefferson, was magnificent. And he wanted the same thing, even if possibly better, for the French. So he wrote it himself. He was uh, elected to the Chamber of Deputies, which is like the House, U.S. House of Representatives, on the liberal side. Mm-hmm. He always sat on the left and uh, uh, was instrumental in the defeat of of making sure that Napoleon didn't come back as emperor after the after the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium. In fact, he he rose and said we can't have him come back, and he give gives all the the reasons for that. It's a magnificent short speech, but man, it just hits Great because job. of all the thousands of soldiers that Napoleon was responsible for. They're landing on landing dead on the battlefields of Europe, mm-hmm. and in addition, he. He had certain things that, because he was imprisoned, he was caught by the Austrians as he tried to come to America. This was in Belgium as he left the troops, hmm. because you see, the Jacobin, the the rebels in Paris, uh, ordered him to come back and stand trial for treason, and he knew what that meant. As an aristocrat, he had rejected his title, but he knew that they regarded him not only as an aristocrat and death came for anyone who was an, arith- an aristocrat. His, uh, his wife's um, 
mother and sister and grandmother were all guillotined Ouch. for that crime. And and so he knew he had to had to leave, but he didn't expect to be captured. They hoped to get out, but they were captured. How long, Donald, did it take for you to get the details, at least to your satisfaction, correct, and uh, get to the point where you could share Lafayette's story? Well, I would say I, I've been working on the book about 12 years and I've tried mm. to market it for another two. Mm. So it's been a consuming thing for me. Originally, I went over to France and I visited oh, five or six sites that Lafayette is famous for having been to. I've been to his houses, things like that. And I just felt that there was so much there that didn't need to be done. I would say one of the most remarkable things that I found out, I have a section that's uh, after Lafayette died in 1834, there were a number of things that happened posthumously that didn't that are so fascinating that I just couldn't put them down and just end it with his life the way most biographers do. Yes, I just mentioned the most to me the most interesting one. Uh, Pierre Laval, the French premier during World War II, who collaborated with the Nazis. In 1935, his daughter and his son-in-law, came, who was a direct descendant of Lafayette, came to him and said, we would like to have your help in acquiring Lafayette's home, which is called Chateau, uh, uh, Chateau de Lagrange, La and it's about 30, 30 miles southeast of Paris. It was in very bad shape. Hmm. And Pierre Laval uh, provided the money. And I find it highly ironic that he would provide the money for the, for what, the man who is known as the champion of freedom. Uh, An amazing... Or the, apos- or, the apostle, or the apostle of liberty yes. would have later on have succumbed. He, he felt he had no other choice. And it was... It was either going with the Nazis or, or watch them destroy France. It's and, of course, for that, he was later captured, stood trial, and was assassinated. It's an amazing story. Five hundred, Almost 444 pages. This uh, obviously would have taken a lot of effort and uh, delving into the past of Lafayette. You also, uh, one, one, one of your chapters has an interesting title, at least from my perspective, considering that Lafayette lived in the 1700s. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the title means. It says Tennis Court Oath. What is a Tennis Court Oath referred to? Well, I spend many... First of all, I have to tell you that he fought in three revolutions. Yes. And that's why we have such such a long book to take care of that. Um, it took six years. Most people don't know this. It took six years for the king to lose his power. Slowly. He was absolute, you know, when, it, when, the, Correct. when the difficulties began. And through one change after another, the Constitutional Assembly and so forth. Well, in the course of, of this, the, the delegates who were asked by the king originally to come together to see how he could solve his tax problems, the nation's tax problems. And they, at one point, were meeting, um, oh, let's say about a half at the palace at Versailles, but not, not close about, you know, um, let's say half a mile in a special building called the uh, Building of the Small Pleasures, which mm-hmm. was where the, the sets and the fireworks and so forth were arranged. And they were met there. And so uh, in the course of that, they were locked out of the building that they were meeting in, and they immediately went over to the tennis court. Really? Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's an indoor tennis court at Versailles, which you can visit, of course. Correct. And one of the things I found fascinating, in French, ten, uh, tennis is called jeu de paume, and that means hand game. Tennis began as a hand. You used your hand, not with a racket. Fascinating. Uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because it helped me refresh myself with French and to have that wonderful experience. So in my book, I use pretty much use the, the French uh, spelling sometimes. For instance, I don't say D-U-K-E, I use D-U-C, which is the mm. word for, 
the same word, of course. And I think that helps the reader come into the book and, and realize that we're dealing with some extraordinary people here. Incredible. Lafayette, his extraordinary life and legacy, and my author, Donald Miller. Why should my listeners get a copy of this, and where can they get a copy of it? Well, it's uh, listed with Amazon.com and also uh, with uh, BNN.com and, uh, and other sources. And I, a friend of mine is expecting to have the book uh, in his hands today from that source. Wonderful. And, uh, they can also do a search under your name, of course, uh, Donald Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, standard yeah, spelling, and find right. not only this book but the others that you've written. So Several you, of, of other other ones are still on there, yeah. Incredible. Well, I hope that we can visit again about Lafayette or whatever might happen. Is there a sequel to this uh, edition coming on? No, I may, I may do my memoirs. My, uh, I, as, a, as a journalist and interviewer, very much like yourself, I... I have several hundred people that uh, I would like to uh, give my points of view on uh, along the way. Now, as someone, another writer said to me when she was asked a similar question, why don't you write a memoir about these people that you met? And she said to me, but you know, Donald, I, your interview was just a, a few minutes or maybe uh, an hour at the most. And I thought, that's very true. And so that true. sort of stopped me for a while. But then one day... When I was out biking, I thought to myself, wait a minute, I can just do brief paragraphs and make my impressions. Well, as it turns out, I've got more than enough for a book. Incredible. Uh, Donald, what was the most uh, exciting or unusual discovery you made about Lafayette and his visits to the United States? Well, to find out the reason that he came back as a wildly lionized hero of the American Revolution 41 years after its had occurred. The country was kind of in a funk at the time. It, it didn't seem to have much leadership. So the country went wild over Lafayette, who came for a specific reason, and that was to lay the cornerstone at the uh, Bunker Hill Monument in Boston. Fascinating. And, and the fascinating thing is, uh, even though uh, John Quincy Adams, the president, admired Lafayette tremendously, and even had him stay at the end of his visit at the White House, was an opponent of the Masons. And so he refused to be the um, general chairman and the person who would be saluted. So guess who took his place? Really? (laughs) Monsieur Lafayette. That's right. Fascinating. And he was given a tremendous welcome before something like 4,000 people on the hillside there none of whom could probably hear what they were saying because of, you know, no PR system. <laughs> but anyway, there was a tremendous luncheon that uh, only men could attend afterward. And, um, and Daniel Webster greeted him with a fantastic salutation. Thank you for sharing Lafayette's story. And again, it is a, uh, a well-researched book, almost four, well, it's 444 pages or so. And uh, the title again is Lafayette, His Extraordinary Life and Legacy. And our author, Donald Miller, shares the story of Lafayette and how he impacted not only Europe, but also the United States in uh, the early years. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Jay, very much. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.